This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to spend some time each Friday on First Jobs. And we call it First Jobs Friday because everybody had to have one. Well, let's hope everyone would have a first job, which would lead to a second and a third job. And this is our way of talking about many things, including personal responsibility and even upward mobility. And we talk to famous people about their first job. Everybody we talk to, we ask them what was their first job. And by the way, this came about because Alex once brings me a clip of, of all people, Ashton Kutcher at the Nickelodeon Teen Choice Awards. And Ashton was talking about his first job and actually then his second and his third and of all places at, again, the Nickelodeon Teen Choice Awards. Let's take a listen to that clip that inspired this segment. When I was 13, I had my first job with my dad carrying shingles up to the roof. And then I got a job washing dishes at a restaurant. And then I got a job in a grocery store deli. And then I got a job in a factory sweeping Cheerio dust off the ground. And I've never had a job in my life that I was better than. I was always just lucky to have a job. And every job I had was a stepping stone to my next job. And I never quit my job until I had my next job. And so opportunities look a lot like work. And by the way, if you have a first job story, 844-627-8255 is our line, and we leave it open for you to tell a story. And there's about five, don't go over five minutes, but if you can get it in there, we won't cut you off. And tell us about your first job and what it meant to you and what it did for you or what it didn't do. Some people's first job inspires them to never want to do that job again. Others, it's a stepping stone like we learned from Ed Renzi, whose first job was a minimum wage worker at McDonald's. He ended up being the CEO. Not bad. And by the way, stories we need to tell more often in this country. Today's story is from Ken Griffin, a Chicagoan who runs one of the most successful hedge funds in the world called Citadel. Forbes estimates Griffin's net worth at a whopping $7 billion. But that's not where he started. As he tells Michael Milken and the crowd at the Milken Institute Global Conference. Raise your hand if you work for minimum wage. I did when I was younger. Most of the hands in this room go up. And I can tell you what, most of us probably hated a lot of aspects of those jobs. We wish we were paid more. And we would never have changed that moment in our life in the scheme of things. I worked at the Franklin Mint Gallery. I convinced people to buy the Star Trek chess that they really didn't need. (laughs) That's great. And then Ken Griffin got to college and discovered just how important first jobs like his really are. In college, I actually did, a, I did a, a bit of research on income mobility in America. The single most important factor to escaping poverty is securing your first job. It doesn't matter if it's flipping hamburgers at McDonald's or working at the Franklin Mint Gallery. Your first job in America is the start of the ladder to the top. And when we start to reduce the ability for companies to form, for companies to hire people, for companies to create jobs, we're actually taking away what we also value, which is the ability for everyone to get ahead. And that's what we like to do here in Our American Stories. We like to explain how things happen, how a business starts, how it grows, how it succeeds, and how it employs more people. And ultimately, if it fires on all cylinders, how much it can actually can contribute to a tax base, too. 
Finally, here's Griffin, who powerfully makes the case that it's small businesses, not big businesses like his, who have traditionally had the most important role of all in providing these kinds of first jobs. One of the real important parts of where I'm going with this is that, and this is Michael Bloomberg. I, I, owe, I owe Mayor Bloomberg this really important, powerful insight. This is, I need to give him credit. Small businesses is where the person who didn't go to Harvard, Yale, Berkeley, Stanford, University of Illinois, etc., etc., it's where they get their first break. When a small company has to hire somebody, they put up the help wanted sign. They put the ad in the paper. They post on the internet. And they're just happy to have somebody who's quasi-qualified walk in the door and say, I will work here. And that person, it may be their first job. And they're happy to have the first job, and the employer is happy to have their first employee. Small companies are the great job creation engine of America. Because once you've held that job for a couple of years, many, many more doors open up. IBM doesn't take risk in hiring people. Citadel doesn't take risk in hiring people. Small companies in America take risks in hiring people. And this is so true, and that's why we love talking particularly about small businesses. And we do that in our American Dreamers story routinely, uh, how people took small businesses and turned them into big ones. And what's holding so many people back right now? You know, in the last few years, you've had a record number of, of small businesses not forming uh, and more dying. And never before in recorded data, as folks have kept track of these things for more than a half century, have there been more small business failures and deaths than births? This is a tragedy, again, for anybody trying to get that first job, as Ken Griffith said, that doesn't have the qualifications. And again, you were listening to Ken Griffin, and you may know him if you know anything about the financial world and about investing. He's one of America's titans in the industry. Again, a net worth of $7 billion. And again, we learned from Ed Renzi. He had ambitions, and he had a child, and was married. And all of a sudden, those ambitions were put on hold. He needed to work 100 hours a week at the minimum wage, which was then 85 cents an hour. And he worked 100 hours a week. And pretty soon he was an assistant manager and then a manager. And he was CEO. And nobody tells that story anywhere. And that's why we tell it here on Our American Stories. Not left versus right. Just reality. This is real life. And we love to tell these stories. And again, go to 844-627-8255. Your first job. We don't just want rich and famous. Everybody's had a first one. We all did here. This is Leigh Habib. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, 
And we love to talk about heroism when we can. And courage, love, and loss. And this segment is a tribute to, so- to soldiers who've fallen. And it's a time for all of us always. I don't know that we have to wait for Memorial Day or special days to do this. And we don't hear in our American stories from time to time. We just bring you these stories. Same with fallen cops, uh, doctors who do remarkable things, folks in churches who do beautiful things, just ordinary Americans doing good things. We like to talk about that. You get enough bad news everywhere else. Come to us for some good news. And this is a tribute from Tony Dolan. We last heard his tribute to his father, his eulogy. We do a lot of that in a segment we call Final Thoughts. And if you don't know Tony Dolan, he was one of the youngest Pulitzer Prize winners in American history for his investigation of official corruption and organized crime in Connecticut in Hartford. He's a legend there to this day. Death threats against him and put a whole lot of guys in prison. He was the chief speechwriter for Ronald Reagan for eight years, responsible for some of the greatest rhetoric of the 20th century, most notably the evil empire speech and the ash heap of history speech. And he is a veteran of eight presidential campaigns. Tony's tribute originally appeared in the Wall Street Journal and is titled, They Will Be Remembered for All Those Who Served. And he graciously recorded it for us. Let's take a listen. I heard the thump as I was saying over the phone to John Gibson at the National Security Council that it couldn't be an accident, since now a second plane had hit the World Trade Center. Putting down the phone, I walked over to the window and looked out on Route 110, which runs in front of the Pentagon. Construction workers, their faces reflecting fear, even terror, were running across this major highway like it was a country road. They had seen the smoke pouring out from around the corner where Flight 77 had hit the building. John, I'll have to call you back, I said when I got back to the phone. I think we just got hit. Move it to the right, said the soldier, when another soldier bent over to adjust the pedal of his wheelchair. When he saw who was helping him, a three-star general, he gulped, uh, uh, sorry, sir, for not saying sir. I'm the one who should be calling you, sir, replied the general, as he wheeled the young veteran to the assembly point for the other wounded. The soldiers were there for the first of many tours of the Pentagon organized for the wounded and their families. For many, this was their first time outside the rooms and hallways of Walter Reed Hospital since their injuries, so they had trouble handling what came next. As they came around a corner, the hallway erupted with thousands of cheering, flag-waving Department of Defense employees, many of those in the parade of crutches and wheelchairs, including family members, were overcome as they moved along. Later, one wife, sounding almost angry through her uncontrolled tears, told the Pentagon organizer, you should have warned us, you should have warned us. Sir, could I ask you a question? I knew what was coming. As the wounded toured the press briefing room, it was always the same question for the older guy in the suit, whom they thought might have some authority. No matter how many limbs were missing or how serious the head wound, they asked me, 
Sir, is there any way you could help me get back to my unit? Guests of honor at a Washington think tank dinner, the two enlisted men in wheelchairs and the sergeant with a cane looked uneasy as they waited entirely unnoticed at the edge of the huge crowded ballroom. The event planners were with clipboards and bugs in their ear just rushed by. When I saw them from a distance, I maneuvered through the crowd and went up to them. They looked up at me as I summoned words that have inspired our fighting forces down the years. Gentlemen, would you like to follow me to the bar? Yes, sir. Thank you, sir, was the enthusiastic response. The crowd parted magically on our way to two beers and a gin. Later, the same crowd oohed and odd when they heard of the soldiers' battlefield exploits. After the dinner, when the van arrived for the trip back to Walter Reed, I would see how good they were at helping fold up their wheelchairs, put them in the back, and then hop along towards their seats with a hand against the side of the van, all the while thanking me for the drinks. Hard to hear and hard to watch. The hero is Grateful Hopper, like the wife at the Pentagon Parade. My reaction was emotional, and I thought somebody should have warned me. Yes, as his name tag showed, the newly appointed aide to Joint Chiefs Chairman Peter Pace was the son of another well-known general. In answer to my questions, he added, he was also a West Point graduate, and he listed the several stateside locations where he had been stationed. With General Pace and Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld just ahead of us as we headed towards the press briefing room, I thought that this young officer was going to have trouble gaining the respect of fellow officers who had seen combat. We turned the corner, though, and then he said, I was in Iraq too, sir. And as I saw his empty uniform sleeve, he added, but I got hurt there. People fled the funeral service for Navy SEAL Jonas P. Kelso as the building shook. Reassurance during an earthquake, though, is a church full of Navy SEALs. The squadron commander kept right on giving his eulogy, and Kelso's comrades didn't budge. Victoria Jennings Kelso, herself a former Marine with a tour in Iraq, added to the intrepidity by speaking nearly unfalteringly of her hero husband and his belief in America's mission. Outside, retired Colonel Oliver North, a Vietnam veteran, said to former Marine Commandant P.X. Kelly, a Vietnam veteran, both of them friends of Victoria's father, Jerry Jennings, an administration official and a Vietnam veteran. Aren't these kids amazing? General Kelly readily agreed. It's the reason why he explained when he was recovering from an operation at Bethesda Naval Hospital, he felt compelled to get himself moved off the deck with the admirals and onto the casualties floor. The casualties. I think of them sometimes, those I knew, the wounded, the ones who only wanted to get back to their unit or left limbs on foreign soil, the ones whom generals wanted to call sir, 
or commandants wanted the honor of being on their hospital floor. I think, too, sometimes of the families of the fallen, the ones whose composure made words not inadequate but impossible. And so I sometimes wonder where they are and how life played out for them. If I were to see them again, I know that even if they asked, I would be reluctant to offer any thoughts on their sacrifice and its meaning, or that of those they loved. But if they asked again, if they pressed the question, I know I would answer and I know what I would tell them. That I have lived a while and seen the verdicts of history and know they are not always quickly rendered. But that about them, the jury's finding is already in. That what they did was right and true, making others safe, protecting the weak, the innocent, giving others what they would never have had, the gift of a future, the gift of tomorrow. And I would say in doing all this, they had made themselves a part, in fact, the best part, of history's great story, the American story. And so I would tell them they will be remembered. And again, that was Tony Dolan, who was Ronald Reagan's chief speechwriter. And if you guys can put words together like Tony does, I've seen the verdicts of history, and they are not always quickly rendered. Is so true. And Dolan talked about the gifts of the future and tomorrow. And he's so right. History's great story is the American story. And these men and women who sacrificed everything will be remembered. And here in our American stories, we don't talk about soldiers and the fallen soldiers of the past only on Memorial Day or Veterans Day. But we just do it regularly because it's the story of this country. And so many people have paid the ultimate price. And so many men and women are out there right now serving our country. And to all of you who served, who've lost loved ones, we thank you. And this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. you were listening to was a rendition of Amazing Grace from Pastor Robert Soto. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we got a great one for you today, and we love talking about, well, individuals' right to push and and promote their own ideas, to worship as they see uh, fit, and government sometimes awkward and sometimes 
uh, brutal way of stepping into the mix. And we look at that dynamic tension regularly. And joining us is the aforementioned Pastor Robert Soto, a member of the Lipan Apache tribe of Texas, a Christian pastor. And he joins us to talk about not only his fascinating life, but a life that the federal government had something to say about, and it wasn't very pleasant. And we'll also be joined by the lawyer who helped him fight the fight at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, and that is Luke Goodrich. And guys, thanks so much for joining us. I'm glad to be here. Thanks Uh, for having us. You bet. Uh, Pastor Robert, let's start off with uh, your story first. Uh, Tell us about the history, the traditions that you've been helping to keep alive. Tell us a bit about your life and how you got to this place. Well, way, way before I was a Christian, our family used to have these ceremonies out in the wilderness, I guess you could say. It was a coming of spring ceremony. Uh, later on, as the elders died and, and people refused to keep it going, we adopted the powwow as our source of celebration, kind of in remembrance of, the, of those that had kept our traditions going. And, and so we started having this powwow somewhere about 1970, 1971. Uh, so it's been going on for quite a while. Uh, we always knew that uh, the possession of feathers, without the permission of the federal government, was uh, w- was illegal. We've known that our lives, but unfortunately, you know, we have to sometimes supersede legality when it comes to interfering with our traditions. You know, and the and, and, and so, can I, let me, just to get one thing: the possession of e- eagle feathers is illegal. But was the reason for this that people thought there'd be poachers killing eagles? And tell us about these eagle feathers and where well, they the, came from. The, so the reason they're illegal is because supposedly the bird is still under a protection, uh, you know, from from annihilation, which is not. Um, but but they, uh, they they sort of have all these laws and all these restrictions as to who can possess an eagle feather and who cannot. And this is where the whole concept of religious freedom comes in, because if you if the government doesn't recognize you as a legitimate Indian or a Native American, by that it's, it means one belonging to a tribe acknowledged by the federal government. So if you don't belong to a tribe acknowledged by the federal government, then you're not considered a Native American. The only person that can possess a feather is a Native American or person from a tribe acknowledged by the federal government. And the way you get that feather is you have to put in all the paperwork and then wait three to five years to receive that feather. It's kind of the bureaucracy of our government. And so so the, the, the federal government doesn't recognize your tribe. Tell us a little bit about your tribe because clearly your tribe exists, and the government yeah. says you don't. T- tell us about you know the history of your tribe. Well, 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 at the end they said we're not saying that, that Robert Soto is not a Native American. We just say we don't acknowledge him as a tribe. Right. We're just kind of like an oxymoron. But they, they say they say one moment you are, and the next moment they're not. Right. And when they took my feathers, uh, they that's exactly what happened. Is that because you're not a Native American? That means one belonging to a tribe that we acknowledge. Then you don't have the right to possess these feathers. And because of that, we're going to take them away. And, of course, at that time, I was told I was facing, you know, some prison time and a large fine. And, um, and so, but, but then two weeks later, I, 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 with my first lawyers, I proved who I was. I gave them everything they wanted, documentation. And then they come back and say, well, because you're a Native American, we're just not going to pursue persecution. We're not going to find you. We're not going to send you to prison. So here, two weeks earlier, I wasn't. And two weeks later, I was. And, uh, and, and, and it just goes to the whole concept of legality. Uh, today in America, there's about 290 tribes that are seeking federal acknowledgement. 
they exist historically, they got all the historical documentation, all the historical evidence, all they need is a stamp approval from the government. But the government, because I guess they don't want any more Indians, it just makes it so difficult to become acknowledged by the federal government. Well, I think one of the things you're getting at, Pastor Robert, is the sheer arbitrariness of these decisions. And here you are doing what you've been doing for a very long time, and you're waiting for some bureaucrat to make up his mind. And one day it's one thing, and another day it's another. The rules keep right. shifting. The line keeps changing. Before we bring on uh, the lawyer and we start to talk about the legal lease. Just a little bit of backstory here. I mean, I'm reading here that after Texas became a state in the 1880s, they passed a law forbidding Native Americans from living, living there. And, 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 and this is included in your tribute. And most of the Lipan Apaches then moved to the mountains of Mexico and to several of the reservations in New Mexico and Oklahoma. So it, 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 your tribe has suffered under, you know, sort of bad jurisprudence and law for a very, very long time. This is nothing new your collision yeah. with American law. Uh, what people don't know historically that uh, during the uh, the fight for the Republic of Texas, the Native community in Texas, for the very first time in history, came together to fight along with the Texans. And so we had a big part of the battle because you don't read that in history. Uh, Sam Houston promised us several allotments of land. They didn't call them reservations. This is going to be your land, and you're going to live there in peace and harmony for the rest of your lives. When Lamarck became president, uh, or uh, yeah, president of the republic, he was very anti-native. He, he thought the only good Indian was a dead Indian. So he established all these laws uh, to annihilate the, the Native American community, specifically the Lipan Apaches, which would play more habit, uh, you know, as, the, as our lands went away and our hunting grounds went away. There, a lot of times we had to, you know, do things that, to survive, just whatever it took to survive. Um, but those laws, sad, sad enough, were on the books up to about 1995. So up to 1995, it was not illegal in the state of Texas to kill an Indian or to kill an Apache. Unbelievable. And, you know, part of the history of this country is, 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 is a stain, and we know those two big stains, and one of them was slavery, and the other was our treatment of Native, Native Americans. And, and Robert, you're, something else was really interesting that crossed the transom, and then again, we're going to get on the other side of this interview into the law, but we always like to connect the human beings to the law. And you're a pastor, and, and, and that's fascinating because from my last estimation, less than 5% of American Indians are Christian. Talk about that. Right. That's fascinating. Well, uh, the reason for the lack of Christianity or conversion is because we carry this history, like you said earlier, this history of abuse. Not so much the slave aspect, but the abuse aspect where, you know, the land was taken, the language was destroyed, cultures were taken away. And the whole concept that natives had no souls, and because we had no souls, we were not worth saving. That's why they put us under the protection of the Department of Interior. The Department of Interior is what, na- is what governs the natural world, where we're yep. part of the natural We're no better than animals. So... So that's why, in many ways, the laws established by the Department of Interior for Native people can contradict the Constitution, but it really doesn't matter because we don't fall under the protection of the Constitution. We fall under the protection of the laws established by the, uh, by the Department of Interior. Well, that's fascinating. And the Department of Interior almost treats the, the people as if they're members of a zoo, and it's, exactly. it's, it's, it's tragic. And when we come back, we're talking to Pastor Robert Soto, a member of the Lipan Apache tribe of Texas, And on the other half of this interview, we're going to go to uh, Luke Goodrich at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, who does such great work protecting people of all faiths uh, uh, and their freedom of conscience and their freedom to practice their religion as they see fit. When we come back, Luke Gingrich 
and Pastor Robert Soto here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and you can go to ouramericannetwork.org to capture all of our work. We're going to go out with some of the music of Pastor Robert Soto just as we had began this segment. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. You're listening to the music of Pastor Robert Soto, member of the Lipan Apache tribe of Texas. And in a minute, we'll be talking to Luke Goodrich of the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. And let's set up the scene now, because we know a little of the background. But uh, Pastor, correct me if I'm I'm right here. I'm going to just rip through what happened. An undercover federal agent basically infiltrates one of the powwows that you're conducting and stops it when he noticed that you and other American Indians in, are in possession of eagle feathers, which we touched on just a little bit uh, earlier. Um, he confiscated your 42 feathers, which had been passed down from generation to generation. These were not new feathers. This isn't from a re- recently killed eagle. And unless signed papers abandoning them, you faced criminal prosecution. And by the way, the agent claimed that he was enforcing the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, Uh, And this is where it gets interesting. The federal agent Alejandro Rodriguez told the Houston Chronicle, quote, they claim they're Indian, but they're not recognized by the government. That's like you or I, just because our great grandmother was Native American, that doesn't give us the right to possess these protected species. Did I about get that right, Pastor? Just about, but there were actually 50 feathers, not 42 or 44. Um, and, and, And the whole process actually started almost like in October, but the, the paperwork didn't go through with sufficient time. So they said, that's okay, we can go to the spring powwow. They have a second one. And so, yeah, so that's pretty much what happened. Uh, I, I think there was more than one agent, because after all, one had to hold the camera and the other one had to post, you know, for those pictures. But that was just about it. So now you're, you're in a scrape with the federal law, and thank goodness in comes the, 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 the man on the, on the white horse, and that's the Beckett Fund, and that's Luke Goodrich. And Luke... Tell us about how you hear about this story and what happens next. Well, so this is a really extreme case where the federal government is actually coming into a religious ceremony. You know, the, pow- the powwow is sacred. And it's sort of like if the federal government came into a church service and confiscated the communion wine. You know, that's, that's how extreme this, this violation was. And so uh, Robert... Uh, you know, a lot of a lot of folks would just kind of take it lying down, but Robert and his uh, the fellow members of his congregation weren't going to just take it lying down. They're they're Lapan Apache warriors, so they went to court. And fortunately, we have some some laws on the books that say uh, if the government is going to restrict somebody's religious practices, it has to have a really really good reason for doing that. 
And here, our argument in court was, you know, the government really had no need to infiltrate the powwow in this way. You know, the government allows hundreds of eagles, if not thousands, to be killed every year for non-religious reasons, Luke. And yet, this, these feathers, as we learned, were passed down from generation to generation. What the heck's really going on here when the, the federales uh, you know, exhibit such muscular uh, intervention? What's really, do you think, going on? Right. As you point out, you know, Robert and his family, they would never lift a finger to harm an eagle. They believe eagles are sacred. So the feathers that Robert and his family and congregation have, these are passed down from generation to generation, uh, never from a killed eagle, but from, you know, eagles that naturally molt feathers in the wild or eagles that are, that are killed naturally. And yet, you know, the government, like you said, allows power companies and wind farms to kill hundreds of eagles every year. They allow museums, scientists, and zoos, and farmers to have eagle feathers and to, to disturb eagles, and yet they won't allow Native Americans to peacefully possess their feathers. And I think what's, what's going on here is just extreme, callous indifference to Native American heritage and to Native American rights. And it was just really unfortunate what the government was trying to yeah, do. I don't think, you know, I think in the end, Luke, this is a sort of a rank bigotry, because I don't think the federales would dare walk into a, a Catholic church or a synagogue or a mosque and do this. There's just zero chance that that would happen. That's my gut. I don't know about you. Uh, yeah, I think you're, you're absolutely right. And it's just so unfortunate. We, it's really history repeating itself, because the federal government so often has disregarded uh, the rights and liberties of Native Americans. And, and here it is, you know, you'd think we were still back in the 18th or 19th century, and yet uh, the government is still trampling over the rights of Native Americans. And let's uh, talk about the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, because it was this bill, which, by the way, was signed by uh, Democrat President Bill Clinton, and there was an evenly divided Congress, and it passed almost unanimously. How did this particular piece of legislation help you and Pastor Robert and his tribe uh, get victory? So the, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act is a pretty simple law, and it basically says if the government is going to burden or restrict somebody's religious practices, it has to have an extremely good reason for doing so, and it has to you know, try to pursue that reason in a, in a way that uh, restricts religion as, as little as possible. And so in this case, the government claimed that its really, really important interest was protecting eagle populations. The government says, you know, hey, that eagle is our national symbol. It used to be endangered, even though it is no longer endangered or threatened. And the government said, hey, there's, there's actually a, you know, a risk of people going out and killing eagles for, for religious purposes. But we came back in court and said, wait a minute, you know, you allow hundreds and hundreds of eagles to be killed every year by power companies, and you allow people to possess feathers for all these other sorts of reasons. You, you even allow certain favored Native American tribes to possess eagle feathers, and yet you won't allow Robert Soto and his family and his congregation from you know, the Lapan Apache tribe of Texas, which, by the way, has a treaty with the Republic of Texas and with the United States. You won't allow Robert to just possess, peacefully possess, feathers for religious purposes. And the court looked at this and, and agreed with us and said, yeah, you're right. The government does not need to be going after Native Americans in this way. And what the government did was wrong. 
You know, the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit ruled in favor of Pastor Soto, relying on the Supreme Court's decision in Hobby Lobby and finding that the federal government failed to justify its restrictions on religious freedom. Pastor Soto, it took you nine years, but you got your feathers back. Talk about what that was like and how you felt when that happened. Well, I, I kind of really felt violated. You know, it's kind of like stuff that we've known in our lives, a circle, we call it a sacred circle. And it's not that, you know, taboo to go in there because we allow people to go in there, but it's, we have a lot of formalities, a lot of uh, what we call protocol before you can enter the circle. What really bothered me the most was the reason they went into our circle, knowing that it was sacred, uh, was because we violated two federal laws according to the, you know, according to the Department of Interior, and, and that was that we advertised our gathering in the newspaper, and that we, and there was the exchange of money. You know, we, we do that in church every Sunday. You bet. <laughs> we advertise our church in the newspapers, and we, and we have a collection and an offerings, and, 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 I, and my thought was, well, why are we being pointed out? You know, why we pointed out, why does the government come into our circle, which we consider sacred, which, not, not, by the way, not just a circle. Uh, they could go to any ceremony or any gathering if they advertised it or there was the exchange of money. That's a, that was the violation of federal law. People say, I don't believe that. I said, I wouldn't believe it either if I didn't hear from the mouth of the lawyers from the Department of Interior. Right. <laughs> asking me, you know, was there exchange of money? Uh, did you advertise? You know, and and... Uh, I'm a born again Christian. I've been a pastor. I've been a pastor for 30, 38 years, I believe, maybe thirty six, thirty eight years now. Uh, you know, I've been committed to the Lord all my life. And the, the, you know, we don't worship the feather. The feather is just part of our worship. It's kind of like we don't worship the piano at, at, at church. You know, or you know, like I told somebody that the, the feather doesn't make us an Indian, just like the cross around my neck doesn't make me a Christian, you like bet. the Star of David doesn't make me a Jew, or rosary make me a Catholic. All those are symbols of my religious freedom. And, and so here the government now is telling me, it, when they said we couldn't have the feathers at the powwow, he was also saying I couldn't use my feathers in our religious services, in our ceremonies, the baby's dedications, weddings, funerals, because all that was violation of federal law. And so it wasn't so much that they were keeping my feathers away from the powwow, but they were keeping my feathers away from who God the Creator created me, a Native person. Yep, and and I love what you said, uh, in, in a, and I'm going to read the quote. This is a victory not just for me and my people, but for all people of faith. If the government can take away my freedom, it can take away yours. We have to stand yeah. together. I wanted to close with you, Luke, because the Beckett Fund, and what I love about the Beckett Fund is, though I think quite a number of the folks there are Christians, uh, what, what I love about Beckett Fund is you're always taking the stand for people of all faiths, and I think that makes you special. Uh, talk about the mission really quickly of the Beckett Fund. you got about a minute. Sure. So the, like you said, the Beckett Fund defends religious freedom for people of all faiths. And we won the Hobby Lobby case in the U.S. Supreme Court, and that was on behalf of uh, evangelical Christians who owned a family business. Uh, we won the Little Sisters of the Poor case in the Supreme Court, which is on behalf of Catholic nuns who helped help the elderly poor. Uh, we won a case called Holt in the U.S. Supreme Court on behalf of a Muslim who wanted to grow a beard. And, and we won Pastor Soto's case on behalf of Native Americans who wanted to possess eagle feathers. And you might think, you know, these four clients have very little in common. And, and when it comes to their actual religious beliefs, there, there are some sharp disagreements there. But the underlying principle is the same, that the government should not dictate to people what they can and can't believe and what religious practices uh, they can and can't engage in, and that we're all better off 
when we're when we're free to pursue what we believe to be the truth. So the Beckett Fund is honored to represent Robert, and you know couldn't take any cases unless people were courageous enough to stand up to the government when it was telling them they couldn't practice their religion. Well, Luke, thanks for all you do at the Beckett Fund. We love telling stories of the great work your lawyers do, and my goodness, what a great use of a law degree. And Pastor Robert Soto, thank you for fighting the fight, and uh, thanks for doing all you do. What an interesting story, what a good life, and what a good story about our First Amendment, that the courts are there in the end to protect us from government overreach. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. American stories and for the hour cover songs we saw Rolling Stone readers 10 best covers and we thought let's do that and let's pick some of our own you're listening to the 1965 Broadway musical The Roar of the Grease Paint and the song The Smell of the Crowd and Rolling Stone thought that the version you're about to hear was the best cover of this song and came in at number 10. Here's the muse singing Feeling Good. Birds flying high, you know how I feel. Sun in the sky, you know how I feel. Drifting on by, you know how I feel. It's a new dawn, it's a new day, it's a new life for me, and I'm feeling And that was the Rolling Stone reader's opinion, but Jesse's Nina Simone singing Feeling Good. High, you know how I feel. Sun in the sky, you know how I feel. Breeze drifting on by, you know how I feel. It's a new dawn, it's a new day. It's a new life for me, yeah, it's a new dawn, it's a new day, it's a 
new life for me. It's so hard to turn off any Nina Simone song. Yeah, I think Jesse won. Yeah, I think Jesse won too. And originally written for the soundtrack of Pat Garrett and the Billy the Kid, Knocking on Heaven's Door gave Bob Dylan a much-needed hit after years of being written off as a washed-up 60s folk act. Stone Reader's Choice, and, well, everybody's covered it, Eric Clapton YouTube. but in 1990, Guns N' Roses recorded it for their Days of Thunder soundtrack and introduced it to an entirely new generation. It has been a staple of their live show ever since. come back we're going to rip through the rest of rolling stones reader's choice for top 10 covers let's go out with axel guns and roses and their cover of bob dylan's classic
You're listening to Lead Belly. Where did you sleep last night? We're hitting Rolling Stone's Reader's Choice Best Covers. And let me tell you, I'm a huge Lead Belly fan, and I don't think there are many better singers. But when I saw Nirvana cover this song, one of the last, if not last, songs in that amazing Unplugged in 1990, well, take a listen to Kurt Cobain do this, and anybody who doubted his talent as a singer, not just a writer, well, they had to rethink everything.
girl, where will you go? I'm going where the cold wind blows In the pines, in the pines Where the sun don't ever shine I will shiver the whole night You just can't stop that song. It's impossible. And now number seven. Here's the original. It's Dolly Parton's Jolene. That 1973 classic is the voice of a desperate woman begging a more attractive woman to not steal her man. Not a single word is reserved for the man in that love triangle, by the way. The White Stripes, Jack White, recorded a snarling, feedback-laden cover in 2000. Let's take a listen. And eyes of emerald green 
comes like a breath of spring You both sound like summer rain And I cannot compete with you, Jolene And I had to have this talk with you Cause my happiness, it depends on you And whatever I decide to do, Jolene And we are covering Rolling Stone's reader's pick of the 10 greatest cover songs. And now it's time for number six. Here's the original, the Isley Brothers, Twist and Shout. In their 1963 LP, Please Please Me, in a single day, they recorded that song. So when it came time for John Lennon to sing a cover of the Isley Brothers' Twist and Shout, near the end of the session, his voice, it was just shredded. He rallied by gargling milk and swallowing cough drops before nailing the song in just two takes. This is Our American Stories, the top 10 reader's choice covers a Rolling Stone. And by the way, what made this song so special were the raw vocals of John Lennon. He was never happy with them, but that's what made the song special. More after these messages. Thanks. 
This is Our American Stories. Rolling Stone readers pick the top ten greatest cover songs. And that's the original version of David Bowie's The Man Who Sold the World. And then Nirvana. Again, this is the second of theirs in this top ten. And here's their version. Again, MTV Unplugged, 1993. Now we're winding down. We're getting into the top five now at number four. Well, here's the original. Off Sergeant Peppers, it seemed like a throwaway. And a great throwaway. Take a listen. What would you think if I sang out a tune? Would you stand up and walk out on me? And by the way, you rarely heard Ringo sing there on Honey Don't, another rockabilly tune, but very rarely a perfect drummer. But my goodness, every once in a while, he'd hit it out of the park as a singer too. But the cover that Rolling Stone fans went for, well, it was one of the most indelible images from Woodstock. Joe Cocker looking so, well, just stoned. He could barely stand upright, belting out this same classic. It was like an old soul standard by the time he was done with it. Take a listen. 
Stories. We're doing the countdown. Rolling Stone readers pick the top ten greatest cover songs. And there are very few singers who could dominate a lineup like Woodstock's. But he stole the movie. He stole the show. And then you see John Belushi's take. Because you know that's all John Belushi wanted to do. 
was B. Joe Cocker. You knew it when he did it. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. The final three when we come back after these messages. American Stories, you're listening to Leonard Cohn's Hallelujah. His career was at a low point when he wrote that song in the early 80s. His label had no interest in even releasing the track or the rest of the songs that eventually came out in his 1984 album, Various Positions. The track was a fan favorite, though, but it didn't receive much love until the Velvet Underground's John Cale created a stripped-down piano version for a 1991 Leonard Cohn tribute album. But it was this cover by Jeff Buckley that Rolling Stone readers put in at number three best covers. Here is the remarkable Jeff Buckley who died of far too early and premature death.
She tied you to her kitchen chair And she broke your throne And she cut your hair And from your lips She drew the hallelujah And now we're getting down to number two. And here's the original. It's Nine Inch Nails Hurt. And then in 1994, well, Trent Reznor remembers the first time he saw the video for Johnny Cash's cover. Tears started welling up, he said. I realized it wasn't my song anymore. Let's take a listen. I hurt myself today to see if I still feel I focus on the pain The only thing that's real The needle tears a hole The old familiar sting Try to kill it all away But I remember everything What have I become My sweetest friend Everyone I know Goes away in the end And you could have it 
crown of thorns upon my liar's chair full of broken thoughts I cannot repair beneath the stains of time the feelings disappear you are someone else I am still right here what have I become my sweetest friend everyone I know goes away in the end and you could have it all my empire of dirt I will let you down And now, and I don't know how you put something ahead of that. I don't think it's possible. That's our number one for the Rolling Stone readers. Well, here's the original by Bob Dylan. There must be some way out of here Say the joker to the thief There's too much confusion I can't get no relief Businessmen, they drink my wine Plowmen dig my earth None of them along the line Know what any of it is worth And here's the number one, no need for an introduction. Be some kind of way out of here. Say the joker to the thief. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. Businessman, there, drink my wine. Come and dig my earth. None will level. This is our American Stories, Rolling Stone readers, top 10 greatest cover songs. Take a listen. <laughs> 